Today I'm going to be talking with Tim Cotton from Ultima Online. He's a veteran game developer with a focus on virtual worlds and MMOs, and he was previous lead designer on Ultima Online. So it's really exciting to have him here. He has a really interesting take on the metaverse, and he's going to be talking some about AI also. It was just a really great conversation to have. Remember, you could be part of these conversations. We are having them all the time at P1OM. Yes, we changed our name. If uh, you guys don't know, uh, we are the people first open metaverse initiative right now and uh, if you check out the discord link in the podcast you can join us and be part of everything that's going on we would love to have you you can have your voice right here in this podcast and be part of these amazing conversations that are happening so jump in and be a part i'll leave you the link in the description of this podcast so awesome. i've been working in the game development space and then enterprise and blockchain for like over 20 years and yes. my first big break came yeah joining the ultima online team and i, I just want to put it in context here mm -hmm. i played uo when it first came out as a beta tester i was like <laughs> really 17 years old in high school and so as soon as i could as soon as my chops got up to speed i, I joined the team at uh, electronic arts in redwood shores now i wasn't one of the og ultima guys but i gotcha. ran that game as a uh, designer and then a lead for I think four or five years gotcha. and uh, I mostly worked in the uh, the live events content before we called it live ops yep. so uh, when when you have things like Halloween servers and that sort of stuff yeah yeah we were there first and uh, the dark side of that is when EA wanted to test microtransactions and free-to-play for the first time yeah yeah we were there oh, um, shoot. <laughs> so so I, I got to see everything from okay. uh, on the ground and uh, obviously you know, MMOs are one part of metaverse thinking, mm -hmm. but um, really virtual world ecology. Uh, that's that's where my deep interest lies, and uh, UO provided that in spades. So I'm always happy to talk about metaverse stuff. Uh, I, I I'm deep. Uh, I have a lot of deep respect for the early metaverse thinkers, uh, Electric Sheep Company, Raf Coster, and so on. So you'll hear me evangelize a little bit. I Definitely. have strong opinions about things so yeah hit me uh i'm ready to answer questions talk about the metaverse whatever topics you want to bring up absolutely really what fascinated me is uh your your definition of the metaverse like i was just looking at your stuff and you're coming at this from a way different perspective than than a lot of the people in the space and even me i come at come at it from a different perspective but i'd love to hear what's your definition of the metaverse and and what makes you passionate about that definition okay cool um first off I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this conversation with saying, look, I'm a, I was never like a super famous game developer or anything, <laughs> nothing like that. But I love MMO development. I love design and I love virtual worlds. Yeah. So I have a very vested interest in uh, a concept that is way older than people are giving it credit for. I mean, as I've said in other presentations, we've had virtual worlds and I'm parroting Raph Coster and saying this. We've had virtual worlds for like 44 years. Right. Yeah. Uh, starting out with just text <laughs> systems, moving to multi-user dungeons, muds, that sort of thing, Deku mud, and so on and so forth. Um, and those guys were tapped. Some of those great talents were tapped for the early massively multiplayer online role-playing games like Meridian 59 and Ultima Online, and then EverQuest, and then World of Warcraft, and so on. Yeah. And what we generally saw was this move from text to 2D to 2.5D, where you had like kind of the fake ISO perspective, and then you had the 3D perspective, and suddenly we're back in this world of, oh, 3D immersion and VR and AR, and I'm like, oh, good, we've started the conversation again. Sounds sounds great. I'd like to be a part of that. So yep. when you at when you said I have a bit of a different definition, you're correct. My definition differs 
from someone like say Matthew Balls. Although yeah. I want to give mad respect to Matthew Ball for like putting together the primer. I mean like that that thing is like a glorious overview of the industry. A uh, glorious overview of where things can go. Um in that I don't see 3D as a requirement okay. in the metaverse. So I'm a bit of a I'm going to I'm going to reduce down to a, a simpler definition. And again, I'm going to uh, it sounds a little bit like I'm becoming like a, a, a fanboy or a fanatic, actually, just parroting <laughs> other people's words. But I, I believe Raph Koster has a good definition in that we have game universes. Mm -hmm. Sure, a company can make a game. We have game multiverses where the same game may interop across many servers. Uh, you may be able to share content between those different servers. We've had that since the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, you even have cross-company stuff or cross-product stuff. Those are multiverses, right? Not yeah. to be confused with the metaverse. It's the integration of the real world in one manner or another, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in AR or VR or pulling data from the real world or injecting the virtual world into the real world, right? Yeah. That's where we get into metaverse thinking. And if I were going to give it like a succinct definition, it is a set of interconnected platforms but it's driven by a decentralized digital identity that we own. So that if I want to take myself, my physical Tim Cotton-ness, and I want to put that online, I have a way to do that. And if I want to alias it and create sub-identities and then later prove that they're still related to me, I can do that. And those identities can own digital assets across multiple platforms. Gotcha. That's an integration from the real world to the virtual world that I think makes a metaverse. Now, some people ask me, can you have one metaverse? Can you have many metaverses? And I think that's TBD, yeah. right? I don't think there's going to be one glorious metaverse technology as much as people may try. Mm -hmm. um, I think humans, we're tribalistic. We love branding. We love marketing. We love differentiation. So I think we're going to end up with similar but different technologies labeling themselves as metaverses. I think digital identity and assets is an important part of that. And I can I can go down the rabbit hole on that, but I'm going to pause just so yep. people could ask questions or we can dive in more. Actually, let's open it up. Uh, I am recording this and uh, we are all live. So if you do jump in, you you are live on multiple platforms, but I want to open it up to you, you guys and ask you guys, what are your thoughts and your questions? We've covered already so much. One of our members asks a question, but his mic is really poor. So Tim summarizes the question before he answers it. So I'll just let it continue. So it's a good question. And let me see if I can sum it up. You're specifically invoking the uh, Neverwinter Nights, right? And the way that servers could, um, you know, have multiple servers, multiple game instances, multiple uh, ecologies uh, and economies, that sort of thing. And is that not a metaverse? The short answer for me is no, it's not. Um, here's why. Uh, one, I would still call that a multiverse, right? I'd still go with Raph's, uh, Raph Coster's definition of that. That's a multiverse. Um, the key difference is, do you have a separate digital identity that you control, right? You made it, you control it, and you can choose to associate it with that platform and disassociate it. Or is the account system directly run by that company? And if the account system is directly run by that company, right? Um, mm -hmm. And you can't, you can't uh, represent your ownership of things from that game into other platforms, whether it's Twitter or whether it's another game as a little pin on your shoulder, right? If you can't do that, then it's not, I wouldn't call it 
metaverse compatible. And let's let's use that as my framework when I talk about metaverse things. As right. is the platform metaverse compatible? The key factor for me is does it integrate with the real world? Even if it's just identity, right? Even if it's just physical identity linked to a digital identity, if it doesn't do that, I don't think it's a metaverse or metaverse mm -hmm. compatible. Now, uh, the definition seems to be quite broad, right? So uh, how does it differentiate, um, you know, when we're talking about the metaverse being around so oh. long, everybody seems to think it's 3D and you think n it's not necessary to be 3D. So what is the what is the, the defining central characteristic? Is it the identity? Yeah, so I, I'm just going to say it as clearly as I can. Look, I'm making a pitch. Right. Yeah. I'm not I'm not like the authority. I don't think anyone's an authority. But I think yeah. if you look at if you look at like the idea of the metaverse yeah. under two two aspects. One, does it involve the real world in some way? Right. And two, can it be client agnostic? And what place does it have in Web 3.0? When you look at it through that lens, I think the Wikipedia def definition as it mm -hmm. stands right now is just uh, a distraction. I think it says, uh, actually, let me pull it out. Okay. It says, a metaverse is a network of 3D virtual worlds focused on social connection. I disagree with some of those words. Yeah. Right? I think Twitter is the metaverse too. Fight me. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I really think that if Twitter is going to integrate the ability to show a digitally owned asset, even if it's a PFP, even if it's just a profile picture, Right, yeah. and they've got your special hex background uh, border or whatever. That's related to a digital identity. Yeah. I think that's metaversy. I think that's moving towards the metaverse. And let me let me give you an example. For instance, if I if I take a painting in real life, and I have a prop for this. Hold on. Let's pull this up. <laughs> He's if come prepared, painting, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. If I take this painting, right, I have this. Yeah. If I take this beautiful painting which is a neat abstract art by an El Salvadorian artist, um, Alex Marquez, uh, coincidentally titled La Metaversa. If I took this and I turned it into an NFT, right? I digitally mm -hmm. scanned it. And then I was able to use it in Twitter. And then I was able to also put it on my wall in Second Life. That's Metaverse compatible to me. Okay. The expression, not just in 3D, right? But also taking that asset and representing it somewhere else. Again, what's the common factor? It's Yes, the social networking, but it's a new level of social networking where I have a digital identity and my digital identity can own digital assets. Gotcha. And the ability for platforms to represent that and have a common set of technologies, that's metaversy to me. Because yes. I guarantee you, people are working right now on metaverse games that are not 3D, guarantee it. Yeah. I know Raph is, I know other people are, so I know I am. So I know that these platforms will come to exist and they will make a strong inroad into the metaverse. Now, get, don't get me wrong. I just want to say this as clear as I can. There is no metaverse right now. Yeah. Very much marketing. It needs to be there, said there is, again and again. <laughs> there is no metaverse. Yep. It does not exist. There have been metaversy, let's yep. call it metaversy, things that have existed. Even Ultima Online was a very metaversy game. Yep. Ultima Online isn't really a game, right? It, it, it's not an ortho game where you like have a, it's not like chess where you have a set of rules. It's a virtual world. It was a platform. Mm. So all these other games like that, that support games within the games, that's metaversy thinking. But yeah. again, until you get to the point of that digital identity, 
And whether that's on the blockchain or not, it really doesn't matter. There are ways to do it without blockchain, absolutely. And yeah. I think uh, the I Decentralized Identity Foundation uh, is doing a great job with that, the DIF. And you can look at them at identity.foundation, right? Okay. That's a website you can go to right now and see what they're doing. I think that's the right direction. Because then I can prove through attestation that I am who I say I am. Mm -hmm. Or I could just build a reputation anonymously, but I still have an identity and I can still use it across platforms. Metaverse. That's where I'm going with it. Identity. Let's, let's, let's look, let's that up. I'm going to put that in the background. Identity.foundation, right? Mm-hmm. P.foundation. I'll pull that up for the people watching. Yep. Um, yep. And what are we looking at here particularly? All uh, right. So I'm mirrored. Up, we, <laughs> yeah. When you pull up the DIF. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. In regards to the, that, what your definition with the metaverse and with like the broader uh, definition of network, um, what, what, how do you see those tying into each other? Like, I guess, would you say like the, the word, like the word network defines everything and then metaverse is a sub section of that? Okay. Yeah. So you've got a really good question there because, and I think this, <laughs> this is going to go down a rabbit hole. All right. And this is going to go down my, this is going to go down my web 3.0 rabbit hole. Okay. Um, <coughs> so let's take a moment and do this. Go for and it. then we can talk about the DIF or we can talk about, you know, identity in general. Um, I think this conversation makes sense. And again, I am not making this up. This is not like my innovative thinking. I am definitely um, kind of like a first follower on things like mm -hmm. this, where I accept that web 1.0 was a thing. Right. I remember when the Internet and the early web developed. Right. I was yeah. a child. Um, I remember the early days of the Internet. Um, I remember that most things that I wanted to do were done from my desktop. Right. Yeah. That was my access method. That was my client on a desktop. And most Internet things were self-hosted. Um, you know, if I wanted to make a web page, I had to figure that out myself. I had to write it in HTML. I had to publish it. I had to like keep my computer up and running on my 56.6 uh, um, baud modem, yep. um, which uh, caused a lot of arguments in my household with only one phone line. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember a lot of stuff like that. And then, of course, what happened? A slow transition towards convenience, right? So two things happened at the same time for Web 2.0 um, over a long period of time. One, mobile which didn't replace desktops, but it sure made us like connect to the internet more often, right? Even when I got my first iPhone, I was like, oh, wow, it was worth, you know, spending the night in line at, you know, the Stanford Mall for that. Um, got my iPhone and I was able to connect to the internet like all the time, it blew my mind. And uh, at that point I was working at EA. And then suddenly, instead of me having to handle my own email, um, Gmail came out. Yep. got one of the first Gmail accounts, right? Remember when, how smart they were? They were like, hey, refer a friend, get an account. I was like, cool. Um, yeah, a brilliant, brilliant marketing tactic. So what we ended up doing was taking the early promise of the web, which was um, putting the power into individual people's hands to publish content and saying, actually, that's really hard. Let's make it convenient and easy by centralizing these services into monolithic companies. Yep. What do we see with web 3.0, right? Well, first, the client technology, we didn't throw away desktops, we didn't throw away mobile, right? We've added things, and the current ad is immersion, whether it's virtual reality headgear, like I got my Quest 2 over here, 
for uh, AR, like the HoloLens 2. I went to a cool um, exhibit in San Francisco called Verse, where you can walk through uh, <laughs> the old basement of the Mint, and you can actually see digital things painted on the walls and interact with sculptures that aren't there. That's pretty neat. That's that's a immersive ad to the web, right? Web 3.0. And then at the same time, you have this giant push to decentralize again certain technologies. And decentralization's hard, right? Um, mm -hmm. Blockchain has made it possible, right? Cryptocurrency has made it interesting and valuable, um, and value is in the eye of the beholder, of yep. course. But um, things like decentralizing identity are now cryptographically provably possible. Yep. Things like decentralizing finance are now possible. Decentralizing computation, it's getting there. Right, uh, the cloud has been a big push on that, but decentralizing cloud access is a bigger um, thing to do. I think uh, the advent of smart contracts and zk rollups uh, are going to be a huge part of that, as far as like decentralizing computation. And when you put those things together, you can end up with things that help enable the metaverse, like digital assets and digital currency. That doesn't mean the metaverse requires those things. Right. It really doesn't. But some sort of digital identity, whether it's hosted on the blockchain or not, and whether that links to the blockchain, which I think is the more valuable proposition, yep. is definitely metaversey thinking. So this Web3 rabbit hole, right? It is an evolution of the way we access the web and what the web actually can do, right? So it's it's not just that we're adding VR, we're not mm -hmm. getting rid of our our phones, we're not getting rid of our desktops either, right? But we're just adding a new way to do it. And I look forward to fun, interesting 3D virtual worlds. Equally, I could say that there's probably gonna be some two or 2.5D worlds, which I would want to use my Quest 2 on yeah. because maybe it just offers me some different UI layering that no one's innovated yet. I wanna see what people do. There's tons of experiments we can do and we're in a real wild west here. So I'll stop there. I'd love to share really quick. So um, my uh, my vision uh, when doing those pages uh, over at Facebook is we were a creator before creators were kind of a thing, right? And uh, we had the opportunity to uh, publish content and because things weren't really refined back then, people weren't trying to get into social media. Uh, we had opportunities where we saw, you know, content go on such a in such a viral way we would reach on a page of 40,000 people we would reach 2 million people would interact with a post and that went really right. really well and there were there were ways to kind of hack through that you know if you ask for enough likes and so forth uh, people will engage and if you reach the right audience people will continue sending that to their friends and uh, it was a really powerful thing uh, but when Facebook went public it took away reach and it basically said if you want the reach for the fans that you have, you've got to pay us, right? But many of us who built audiences already paid to, to, to generate those audiences. So that was for us a struggle. And we said, okay, uh, you know, this is, this is, this shows how much power these platforms have, you know? And so I, I went back to that thinking mode and I thought to myself, what will be the future? And I really thought, you know, one day we're going to put on something like augmented reality glasses and we are going to be in a world of spatial computing where everybody that has the power to do something with their hands will be able to do it in this metaverse, you know, um, whether it's the understanding like the human brain has this incredible ability to understand your location. We don't use that. 
Um, and now you're going to be able to use that. You're going to be able to walk and put away something in a physical building, and you're going to remember where it is because we have that built into our brain. And if you can draw, if you can paint, now you can all of a sudden do it with, with, with zero problem to do that. And of course, the ability to have telepresence comes at the end of that. So you're with anybody, anytime, anywhere, and it's a real connection, real relationship. Uh, and I realized that this would be difficult to make and that there were going to be big companies involved and that one day there would be great potential for, for example, you would look at a pretty lady and all of a sudden all the advertisements around you are presented by that pretty lady because this technology is going to know everything about you. And I said to myself, I want people to be as free then in the world where they will no longer be able to opt out and have a job and have friends and have family as they are today. How do we do that? And I put that question to you. That's a pretty deep question. Right. You're essentially asking, like, what is the next state of the human human, you know, condition, yeah. <laughs> which is which is quite something to predict. You know, a lot of people uh, try to be prophets, especially digital prophets, trying to uh, see the future. Yeah, I can definitely say, for instance, that in 2006, when the Electric Sheep Company funded a giant metaverse forward thinking 76 page document, it's actually longer than that. But, you know, there's like a core overview that's 76 pages. You know, they had a lot of stuff for the metaverse, yeah. especially related to virtual reality, AR, and the utopian and the dystopian things that you just mentioned, yeah. including like the limits of uh, personal space, especially with advertisements and other things. And yet they couldn't see the blockchain. They yeah. couldn't see the decentralization technology that is taking place. And that's fair because I think there's going to be 10, 15, 20 years from now things about the metaverse and web 3.0 that we were simply unable to predict today yeah ways of using it that become obvious in hindsight right that we just can't imagine so to your point about the human condition and about what the web should do right yeah the w3c right who sets these standards for the web who helps innovate things like digital identity and decides on things like standard um and the Internet Engineering Task Force. These people, they have missions, and those missions are human-oriented, not just tech, technology-oriented. Um, and part of that mission is to um, connect us more and improve our overall situation as human beings. Um, and the general hope of the Internet is that by having more information available at our fingertips that will make wiser, better decisions. Yeah. It's not always true. Because as you've noticed over the last little while, um, money talks and it's easy to pay a lot of money to spread misinformation and yeah. our feeds in most social platforms, again, as you guys have all noticed, our feeds are oriented towards what drives clicks and controversy, therefore, rather than a timeline. Yeah. You can think of several um, platforms right now that have gotten rid of chronological timelines, which would be far more functionally useful to all of us, I think towards, hey, let me suggest this thing that will drive a click, which will drive an ad, right? Yeah. And humans, again, tribalistic. We love brands. We love, we love good marketing. That's what we do. We love like uh, adhering ourselves to sports teams, um, political parties, what have you. We like being on a team. We like taking sides. The metaverse will be no different.
Yeah. Right. I really think we're going to see everything from utopian decentralization ideals where a lot of people work really hard, create safe spaces that try to govern themselves. And I just want to tell you right now, self-governance is incredibly difficult and yep. nigh unachievable, right? Um, even for like actual well-funded billion dollar companies, yep. uh, we've seen in the recent history that the repetition of cyber rape is occurring, yep. right? <laughs> Despite 20 years of practical lessons on this in the virtual world community, yep. it still can happen. That means it's going to be all the more harder to have a free and open metaverse because governance is going to become a bigger problem than provenance. It's going to be much harder to quickly uh, intercede to terrible behavior, right? And get enough people to vote in the affirmative to discipline someone, yeah. than it will be to prove that I own this terrible piece of digital property that should not be on the blockchain, right? Yeah. So suddenly we're going to see new problems where human answers with voting and uh, like decentralized autonomous organizations can't be the only solution at some point there have to be there has to be some sort of oracular like an oracle uh solution i from metaverse back to people we can put our trust in to uh moderate for yep. better, for lack of a better word uh our virtual worlds and platforms or we just invent amazing AI that can do it, but that's really wishful thinking. I got to tell you, um, we, it's not so. so much as that we're in an it's AI different. winter. It's yeah. just so much that we're AI is currently in a recurrent neural network buzzword phase, right? Yeah. And that's about all we've got. So I'm going to stop there and take more questions. <laughs> let's open it up to the entire group. Yeah. Anybody who wants to jump in with a question, this is your chance. Well, uh, let's let's hear from somebody. Ask. Go ahead. I was just going to ask about AI too, as well with your perspective, because yeah, I do see that now uh, it's also becoming like, like slowly as, as you know, I mean, of course, as you know, currently we still have to, humans still have to program it to at least have some uh, form of discernment so we can understand how it works and operates, but I'm sure maybe at some point maybe it'll become so autonomous that it'll almost have a mind of its own. And it's like, and at what point are we able to still control it? Because, you know, we've seen that movie, iRobot, where it's like AI and robots yeah. become to start having a mind of their own and then become evil. And it's like, yeah. we don't want that to become our reality, right? So, sure, sure. We've, you know, there's some great science fiction about this. Um, great science fiction from the early days of Asimov forward, right? Some of my favorite stories, and you know, I could provide a list of them, you know, offline, um, range from the uh, three laws stories, uh, which are hilarious when you try to boil down complex behaviors to three laws, and Asimov demonstrates why this is a terrible idea, not a good idea. And then you've got things like the um, the Clippy uh, AI story, where uh, an AI accidentally sandboxes a uh, thinking version of itself and figures out, well, what if I work the Clippy AI? And I, my sole purpose in life was to make paper clips, and then it feeds itself rewards until it's able to do so, and suddenly it takes over the world for the pure purpose of manufacturing paper clips. Um, uh, humanity not needed for that. Um, you know, you, you run this range of what can be done with AI, fears about AI, and all that sort of thing. Um, Elon Musk, for instance, he takes a pessimistic view of future AI development in the sense that he 
believes that we should have strong developmental controls on AI as it's developed to prevent the uh, inevitable, uh, as it's put, uh, uprising, right? Other people have much more hopeful visions for AI. And, uh, you know, we're all free to research those separately. Here's what I can say. My company, for instance, takes a lot of inspiration from the great sci-fi fantasy stuff that's more hopeful, right? Um, uh, taking aside the uh, the murder helmets of Sword Art Online, for instance, and uh, a couple of other games like that, um, in again, sci-fi and fantasy, it's kind of a neat idea that you could train an AI enough to understand human nature and not just individualistic human nature, but also societal human history, enough that it could design a world, populate it with people, and then fast forward a thousand years of people living, surviving, and moving around in that world until they you haven't built a village with your NPCs. The AI has done so. And your players are actually just interacting in a simulated society, uh, for good or better, uh, good or ill, and you've created something that runs itself and this the ai at that point is so familiar with acceptable and un unacceptable behaviors that when a player acts truly egregiously according breaks real rules the ai can handle it you know uh, we are not there and i don't think we will be there for a very long time but it is something that we should pursue i really think that we should pursue the teaching of stories to ais so that AIs can generate worlds based on what we now know are shared stories across many civilizations, many cultures, right? Many cultures have the sacrificial sun story. Many cultures have um, stories about the moon princess. You know, something. there's always something for everyone in human history. There's the, you know, the, the entire hero's arc. There's, there's all sorts of things that are common that when you boil it down to a game, a book, an anime, whatever it is, there's actually just an underlying current there that an AI could be writing to. Anyway, I could go I could go further, but Interesting. You know, rabbit holing. A really quick question. Let's open it up to somebody who hasn't uh, had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, I would like to jump in. Uh, great talk, uh, great, great conversation. Really excited to be here. So, uh, what are the things you would like to see in the open metaverse in the next five to ten years? Oh, great question. Oh, I, I was hoping someone would ask. So, uh, a couple of things. One, um, a standard, a standard for decentralized identity ownership and asset ownership. Right. I, I want that. Number one. Number two, um, a client agnostic way of linking that identity and interacting with. Metaverse platforms. In other words, Metaverse platform says, I have these following standards on accessing this platform with identity, and also I have standards for the rights management for interacting with this platform. In other words, when you play with a Facebook game, for instance, and it pops up and says, hey, this game wants access to your feed, and it wants access to your followers, and it wants access to blah, blah, blah. Cool. I want that list of possible interactions to be standardized at like a committee level. And then I can, on my identity side, say, hey, auto accept the following, right? And also negotiate the following so that when I want to go play a game on a platform, it just kind of tells me instead of reading 100 pages of end user license agreement, it tells me, hey, you agreed to the following. Is that okay? And I say, yes. 
right? I want that. That would be amazing. So those are those are um, what do you call that? Those are smoothing the barriers to entry for interacting with the platform. And then finally, I want uh, meaningful. Uh, I want meaningful platforms. I, I want like cool things that are not just, um, you know, roller coaster style rails based virtual worlds where I can't really do anything. I want worlds where I can create a character, link it to my digital identity, and then live, breathe, and die in that game. It'd be fun. And then, you know, uh, that's somehow hooked up to the real world. Maybe there's there's Twitch streams of what's happening in the world. I don't, I don't care what it is, but I want the real world to be involved somehow. And again, a lot of this is sci-fi fantasy stuff from like Korean manga or manhwa and that sort of thing, but it can happen. It should happen. And I just want to see those barriers to entry be super low. And I want to see standards. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't believe we're ever going to get to a place in item portability where we could create some sort of common standard so that game A can transfer the fire sword plus two to game B with the laser guns, right? I don't think that's a necessary thing. However, it would be great if I could take this export it as an NFT, right? Or whatever technology evolves from NFTs, put it on a secondary market and sell it. And then if I wanted to like bootstrap myself in another world, I could totally buy some stuff and then import it into that world. And it's up to those worlds to declare publicly through an interface, whether they accept imports, exports, and that sort of thing. And that's metaversity. I want to see that kind of stuff happen. Awesome. Great, great point. Uh, when, when you mention uh, decentralized identities, um, out of the probably 70 or close to 80 protocols that are uh, right now backed by uh, W3C, do you have anyone in mind, like any specific that you are looking? I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to commit myself to anything yet because there's it's I'm still it's still too early. Uh, I really think there's so many open questions. Let me give you an example. Here's here's a hard one that committees, standards committees have spent a lot of time on. Names. Like my name, Timothy, Michael, Cotton, with an E, the second, right? And, you know, many systems that are online e-commerce systems, when you try to put in a name like that, lack the suffix, right? And your name ends up being parsed as double I. That happens to me um, for legal reasons. It's a bad idea. Um, some just know better and say that there can only be three names. I see four items, so I'm just going to choose the first three. Some choose the last three. Some say, hey, what happens when you have five middle names, which people can do? So even the idea of a name or different characters in a name than the standard English alphabet, kind of hard. It's an interesting standard um, that is, don't get me wrong, well-developed. Uh, W3Cs and a couple of other places are all over that. But that's the kind of challenges we face when we talk about um, identity. Like, what's my address? Okay, well, what do you mean by address? Do you mean my physical address where I'm living right now? What if I'm traveling? Do you mean like the current place I'm in for the next three months? Um, what if I'm homeless? You know, what, what do I do then? Um, I'm an American citizen. Okay, provably how? I don't want to give out my social security number, right? The United States, unlike Ukraine, lacks a national uh, identity system. Right, so there's all kinds of interesting challenges like that that I think decentralized ide identity stuff can solve. I wouldn't commit myself to a single standard right now. I I'm just trying to read everything and figure it out too. 
I'm, I just want it to happen. Let me, let me phrase a question then. What are the things that uh, a good uh, decentralized identity protocol should have as a bare minimum? Okay. What are the features? Deep, and I love it. Okay. So, and, and by the way, before I answer this, I'm going to say one thing. The one thing I left off of the wish list for the metaverse was um, open computation so that I don't have to, like, so that we can have shared hosting for uh, for metaverse stuff. Like, if a platform wants to pay some sort of nominal digital currency and it's hosted on some sort of, like, open grid style thing, like with uh, what Open Simulator and Open Grid is doing, that's cool. I'd like to see more stuff like that. So, to your question on digital identity, what does a good digital identity system have? One... I can generate my digital identity key myself if I wanted to without the use of the internet. That's a cryptographic system. I think that's important. Um, why? Because there may come a time where I need to be able to interact with a system in a completely headless way from my normal identity, right? Okay, so just keep in mind that that might be a reputational-based system. Um, come back to it. And then, so that's one. Two, the ability to interact with the blockchains, right? It should absolutely be able to interact with the current state of tech. I want to be able to hook up NFTs and say that, hey, these belong to me, right? So suddenly there's this offline online connection, right? Three, uh, just again, reiterating, uh, it should be able to have attestations. And um, I actually went to a panel discussion about this uh, where Microsoft, um, gave an excellent overview of, of what they were doing in this space. And I'd have to look it up and share it with you, but I think they're, they're doing a good job in supporting the DIF on this. Um, and what I mean by that is if I have generated myself a digital identity, it's kind of just like a blank space. If I want to say, hey, here's my name and I define that, that's fine. Um, but then I need to be able to have a governmental authority or you know, like my employer attest and create their own record that says, hey, look, we've attached this credential to this identity. Yes, we agree that this dude is, in fact, Tim Cotton. And I'm like, yes, that's me. And he works here. Fantastic. Um, so that's one side. And you, you get a lot of interesting uh, varieties of behavior with that because, you know, obviously some attestations are more important and authoritative than others. You know, if you're national government gives you an attestation that you are who you say you are, you can trust that more than the LLC that you just generated yourself, right? Um, so I think so far with those three things, we're towards uh, what's important. And then other things that are useful, um, they should have uh, a standards that interrupts with the metaverse uh, technology, right? And I think that's just natural. Um, and then for the ability to disassociate. Um, if I if I have my digital identity hooked up to a platform, I should be able to attest, whether it's on the blockchain or whatever, that, hey, I'm disassociating with this entity. For instance, I'm part of a church and suddenly I've decided to leave that church. I should be able to say, hey, hey, I'm not part of this anymore. They can't claim that my identity is part of them. That's important. Uh, we'll find that that's more important in the future. Um, and then five, I think um, the last element that I think, like if I were just gonna name it off the bat is aliasing. I should be able to take my identity, which I've built up through attestation and reputation by interacting with platforms. And I should be able to provide an alias for it and say, hey, yeah, 
you know what? Tim Cotton is also Draconi, and uh, he's the you know world eater of doom. Yeah, I, I can attach my alias to it, and then I can also use that alias in a game or a platform or a metaverse thing. I, I would like to be able to do that. So that way, if I want to, and I and I want to, I want to say this too. I should be able to generate an alias that's also a one-way alias, so that it looks completely disconnected cryptographically from my original identity. But if I wanted to publish proof that it was me, I could do that in the future. And this is all tech that already exists. I'm not talking about anything new. All I'm talking about is using like public and private key encryption and hooking it up with standards committees and making this work. And I think, again, that there's a lot of people on it and a lot of companies are working on it. And I think uh, things like the Digital Identity Foundation, I mean, the Decentralized Digit um, <laughs> Decentralized Identity Foundation are doing a good job on this. Um, am I an expert in what they're building? No, no, I'm not. Would I like to learn more and work with them? Yes, absolutely. I have a quick question concerning, um, you know, back in the day, I remember when Facebook went head to head uh, with many other companies to kind of dominate the, the social web two space, right? Sure. Um, back, uh, I've been using social media for a while now, and uh, back in the day there were only forums, and y it was kind of like Reddit today, where if you say one thing wrong, they go after you, you know, there was a very hostile place for the average person to be. And Facebook, uh, to their credit, d democratized the space in a way to, to enable the average person to have a voice. And I feel like that was a very powerful and interesting transformation to bring the average person to the table. They did a fantastic job onboarding, you know, more than a billion people onto Web2, uh, which was fantastic. But what I noticed is that, you know, whereas many platforms like MySpace allowed you to do a lot of customization or other platforms allowed you to use not your real name, but an alias, you know, um, Facebook forced you to use your real name and gave you the ugly blue and white and said, take it or leave it, you know. And one of the things I learned is that uh, customization, in my mind, seems to be the real enemy of usability. And this, for me, you know, uh, counts against and, and is a counterpoint to the idea that a, a decentralized metaverse could exist because uh, you can't get everybody to agree to just have the one name and the blue and white uh, unless you have kind of a corporate push uh, to kind of say this is how the metaverse is going to be because the end consumer wants that ubiquity where us technologists want all the customizability. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Well, first off, I think you called it uh, freedom of choice is a tyranny all of its own, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we look at platforms like MySpace where I could change every background and make god awful backgrounds, right? And yep. All sorts of things that auto played in the background. Or you think about GeoCities, right? Oh my yep. god, right? Where you could make total customization yourself. Um, so first off, I'll just say this: the metaverse is more of a, a standards platform than it is like one specific company's vision. And I think we're just gonna see, we're gonna speed run um, software development Darwinism in real time is what I, I expect out of the metaverse over the next 10 years. I think we're going to see the rise of many platforms and the death of many platforms. And yeah. I don't think, and I, this, is, this is where I differ on what Web 2.0 did. I don't think we'll see as much monolithic consolidation Okay. As Web 2.0 gave us, my that's that's more of a theory, and you know if you ask me to support that with evidence, 
that's a difficult one because yeah. I, I'm kind of just being hopeful. I'm being hopeful based on what I'm seeing out of how Web 3.0's um, blockchain stuff has occurred, right? Where we are trying to decentralize things, but decentralized computation and rendering is not sufficient right now to support open visions by people. And yeah. as you pointed out, if people have too much freedom to do crazy things, well, what's going to happen? We're going to end up with like just garbage everywhere. And we don't want garbage everywhere, right? We want, we like clean, useful experiences. We do. Yeah. We're human. Um, and some of us don't like blue and white um, web pages. So mm -hmm. we choose other platforms. Right? Some of us speak different languages or have different cultures where those aren't useful utilities to us. So we use different platforms. The metaverse should be able to allow people from all those platforms to interact in meaningful ways. And they should allow an ecosystem where they can be um, operating you know, at the same time in a cooperation. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. it's not just competitive. It, there is a real um, co cooperative zeitgeist right now amongst the web 3.0 stuff like yeah. even like companies that i talk to all the time about you know blockchain gaming and nft stuff we're all trying to help each other out yeah. right because we want we we kind of just and this is the way the web really develops is we kind of just want everyone to kind of try stuff and succeed and fail and learn lessons but uh, again the final say is going to be given by the users and what's going to happen? We're going to have we're going to have ranked leaderboards of platforms. We're going to have platforms that allow terrible debauchery in the metaverse. Absolute yeah. crazy, terrible stuff that makes 8chan look like heaven yeah. by comparison. And those places are going to be on the list, you know, of mm -hmm. places you don't want to go uh, if you're a normal upstanding digital identity, right? Yeah. Whereas other people might want to. And the digital identity system should allow you to alias your original identity, carry some reputation, and interact with platforms that maybe you don't want to show other people that you're interacting with, whether it's political or, you know, any any other kind of content. Those things should exist. And yet we should also have systems in place to cut them off um, from polite society, um, not, um, not at like some sort of central authoritarian level, but at a consensus level. That says, hey, yeah, by the way, th these guys are just posting terrible things. Um, you're free to go there if you want, but we've we've delisted them essentially from like the common the common searches. Makes sense? You know, awesome. that's just the kind of stuff that people will need. We'll need tools to govern ourselves. I have a question from Wubsoul that says, uh, what would you consider the smallest team size for working on a sandbox MMO RPG like likes of Ultima Online? I thought I'd get that one in there. It was a, it's a big question. Wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. I have strong opinions about this. Okay. <laughs> as, as someone who has been on both sides of this, okay, as mm -hmm. someone who's actually been on both sides, um, both on the successful and the, yeah, I've seen it go terribly wrong, or at least not go as well as it should. Yeah. Um, so first I want to say that uh, there was a time in my life after I left Electronic Arts and after I'd done some startups and I'd um, done some other interesting things where a good friend of mine uh, decided to build a sandbox MMO. Um, and he enlisted my help on some design stuff, and I helped out in the early days. And the main lesson he learned, despite building amazing technology, you know, essentially with like a four or five member team. Yeah. Is that MMOs like Rome were not built in a day or a year. 
for probably 10 years. Yep. When you think about Ultima Online, and this is the key lesson I, I think I brought to myself even just to convince myself of this. When Ultima Online was released, it had first, you know, 20 years of experienced developers from Origin and Electronic Arts behind it on one hand. Don't get me wrong, I understand that, of course, it was a Skunkworks project and that they pulled in a lot of uh, MUD developers like Raf Koster and um, um, his his entire generation into it. I understand that, that, you know, there were a lot of new people brought onto the project who actually made it work and that the old guard wasn't as involved until the shift from Ultima 9, right? I understand that. But that game shipped with tens of thousands of art assets in that game yeah. day one right like when when that when that thing shipped you can go pull open the art resource files right now and you will see absolutely unfathomable amounts of like art content and mm -hmm. then you'll see the same thing with world content like when you look at like how expansive the world was at the time i mean we're talking what was it like 6000 tiles on one edge and 4000 on the other i mean like that's a that's a lot of space to work with um, that game required a, a team of, I don't know, 30 to 100 over its early lifespan. And then, you know, individually, we had at least 20 to 25 people on the team throughout its various expansions. Uh, the lifetime revenue of that game was somewhere in the $150 million range yeah. because of that. Um, keep in mind, it's still running. Broadsword still runs Ultima Online. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're keeping it going for the fans and the community. So the short answer to this long-winded conversation is you need probably 20 to 30 million dollars and a team of experienced MMO devs who have already built one. Yep. Um, and their number should be in the 20, uh, no, probably like the 30 to 40 range. And I'm not trying to be artificial about it. I'm just trying to impress upon the audience that anyone in the blockchain space who claims that they're going to build an MMO based on making a bunch of money off of NFTs yeah i don't i don't believe it's possible right <laughs> we hear it every I, day i don't think <laughs> i we hear it all the time i don't believe it's a feasible goal for instance my company i will absolutely be doing some cool experiments right i will be i will be doing things with nfts and ai and cool things that's like what i'm doing i am never going to promise my community that we're building an mmo right yeah. i just can't do it especially an mmorpg Right? I cannot promise like something like Ultima Online. Um, you know, I've got five people on my team. Right, Even when I fund up and we move to 20 people, I would never promise that we were going to build a massively multiplayer online game because, again, you need the backing these days to build anything of a good quality. Yeah. And I mean anything of good quality. You need significant advantage. And people who are making money off of NFTs and then turning around to make games, they don't come from that world necessarily the problem. some do some do <laughs> but most don't and the ones who do probably don't have as many resources as they, they want to right yeah. so I i'm happy to be pleasantly surprised i would love someone to come out and show me a beautiful mmo that was funded by nfts and uh, i will be i will absolutely you know um kowtow and say you know what good job you beat my expectations but your original question what does it take it takes someone who's already built it before and has the money and the team who knows what they're doing. That's what it really takes.
tell us more about your company. You just mentioned your company and I was reading your blog about moving on to this this future. What brought you to move on and, and what are you doing now? Okay, well, thank you. Um, that's, I was I always love a little time for pitchiness. Um, so I left the formal games industry for a while, even though I did some stuff on the side, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I was doing enterprise, then e-commerce, then blockchain, uh, and got into solidity development. And I always tell, you know, the people who know me that, you know, I never got like super crypto rich or anything, but I got crypto okay. I got into yep. Ethereum and Bitcoin pretty early. And I, I, you know, that's that's a, that's a good place to be in life. And, um, you know, I'm not living on a cruise ship for the rest of my life, right? I'm not, I'm not, that, I'm not that guy. So I, I was, I was uh, doing the sea level thing for a while. And the metaverse conversation has obviously restarted itself over the last six, seven months. And I, yeah. I thought to myself, well, you know what? Time is right. I'm in a good place in my life. I've got good friends, resources. I've got good technology. Uh, I've got I've got the kind of partners that I could pull together and I said you know what hey former boss I'm gonna give you like four and a half months of notice let's go find a new sea level for you let's go let's go like teach him everything and him or her whoever it would be yeah. and let's let's actually get this this transition done not because uh, I don't want to work for you but I think it's time for me to build something again myself right yeah. and so I talked with my partner and um, he's a great guy um, Jay Lim, and um, we decided that, hey, you do have a great background in games. What can you do, what can we do that's new and different and isn't just copy-pasting all the ERC-1155 code? And I said, well, yeah. there's a bunch of stuff. You know, one of the things I was really good at on Ultima Online and other uh, games after that was procedural content, yeah. like generating things that weren't just random but actually looked neat had utility or kind of cool, interacted with the players in interesting ways. So I thought, let's just, let me write some code for that. Let's make something interesting. And so I have an unannounced partnership coming up with the cool. layer two blockchain for a pretty cool procedurally generated NFT system. And unlike every other NFT that does like a, uh, just like a, a stale run of like 10,000, this is an open minting contract where you can use our engine to search for the attributes you want. There's rarity attached to it. And then for like a little nominal fee on the blockchain, you can go and redeem the like S tier thing that you found if you want to spend that much time looking for it, or you can redeem an A. But those little NFTs give you early access to the games we make, right? And power-ups gotcha. in the game. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Let's make some fun games. Um, what mini games can we make? And how can that lead to something more important? I don't want to spoil everything right now. But if you took the main attributes out of Ultima Online's living world ecology before it kind of got crippled and mm -hmm. kind of got reinvented because I helped reinvent a bunch of stuff there. If I took the core things and said, hey, what's interesting? That's what I'm working on. And it's not going to be an MMO, but it might be something more like The Sims, might be more like black and white, it might be something fun like that that's more of a uh, online experience with others. Yeah, but it's more about you creating some um, some NPCs to play with. Nah, I'm not going to go further than that, but it's going to be fun. And if you want to get in on it, just come to the website and there's like a little free airdrop sign up. You can get on the wait list. There you go. Scriptedinc.com. If you guys want to check that out, uh, you have it here. Uh, I'm just screen sharing it and uh, give it a give it a shot and give it a quick look. All right. As we do that, go ahead and jump in. I know uh, people are really eager to ask questions, so go ahead. Hey, Samuel, this is uh, Sean and uh, Tim. Uh, great talk. I mean, I love when veterans in the industry come out and get to share 
their ideas and, and obviously passion, especially around the metaverse. Cause I think it is this dystopian kind of abstract thing, but I think right. people are, people are heading in the direction, right? It's created so much interest. And I think you're spot on with identity. Um, identity is going to be huge because the idea of adoption in a true metaverse with both AR and VR headsets, you need ability to onboard very easily, right? And to set up new accounts and a new way of um, interacting. If it's 3d or 2d, it doesn't matter. And I agree with you. It should be client agnostic. It doesn't matter how you want to access the metaverse. It should be one massive digital system. Um, I would like to t um, kind of t ask you a question more on scalability. Um, sure. I'm actually the founder of a company called RP1.com, and we actually are solving the idea of there are massive blocks in the network server architecture and allowing scalability. And in MMOs um, with like Ultima Mine or any type of things, you ended up solving it by just saying, hey, we're going to put X number of people on a server and then we'll move on and everyone will play within that space. But if you think of a metaverse, you think of everyone either walking around a potential digital twin of this planet or being able to move from a Fortnite to a shopping mall. Uh, we've solved it through ultra, ultra efficient um, software where we can enable a massive amount of people on a single server. So I'll give you an example to demo this this technology. We're putting about 16,000 3d full six degrees of freedom in a vr space on just one server um and so we're trying to solve and show that it can be done on the network server architecture side but obviously want to work on the client side i want to understand from your point of view the importance of scalability um in a metaverse because i think i agree with the identity but how do you get mass amount of people and is there an importance in doing so and just get kind of your ideas from from your uh, your past experiences okay excellent excellent topic sean what I'm going to say may shock, surprise you, or uh, and I don't want you to take anything I'm going to say as oriented towards your business or you know like in any kind of derogatory way, um, because I'm very excited about people who are actually working on scalability and being able to handle 16,000 people, as you said, in a single server is excellent software. I'll, I'll just say that out loud. Um, again, I have a strong bias here. I have a very strong opinion about this because even back in the late 90s and early 2000s. The Ultima Online tech could handle tens of thousands of simultaneous users on the same game server. Caveat. Really what it, we did is we divided the world up into um, things called area serves, which were separate computers running on separate processes in a cluster. And they had rigid boundaries um, in this 2D world that you could walk over. The code that really enabled it was not just the networking code uh, underneath the hood to like, you know, uh, handle many simultaneous users. The real challenge, and this is a place where I think there is a complete lack of innovation. So Sean, please take over on this. It'd be great. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to talk with you about it, is the mirroring. So let me explain what I mean. In Ultima Online, when you came to the boundary between two area serves, unlike World of Warcraft or other games where you had to essentially teleport into the next zone, right? Or, and I shouldn't say uh, Warcraft because they, they made more seamless boundaries. Um, when in many MMOs, you end up having to teleport from one zone to another and it's an actually separate server because that's how they handle scale. UO did it differently. UO stitched the world together. I want you to imagine that it was a giant grid and it divided it up into like 16 pieces and they were rectangles and they weren't all the same size. They were all different shapes um, because they were centered on population areas. And so when you came to a line, like you're walking down the road and you came to a line, the networking code between those two area serve processes would actually communicate about two screens worth in tiles. This was a tile based game, two screens worth in all directions data 
from one to the other. As things moved, whether it was you as a player, objects on the ground, and keep in mind, this is a game where you can drop things on the ground and the game persistently kept the state and of those objects. It didn't just like wipe them from existence. You could literally stack chairs on the ground and climb them if you wanted, or uh, set up a chain of explosives if you wanted. The area serve process would communicate to the other server and the other area serve would communicate to it back and forth with a piece of code we called the mirror, mirror code. And it was the source of much wonder and frustration. Um, I'm sure the early devs can tell you um, that this is where um, the entire idea of duping objects oh, in games yeah. came from. <laughs> this is where this came from because if there was a error in syncing, you could literally drop a chest on one side, come over to the other, pick it up, and suddenly you have two chests. <laughs> Terrible idea, right? Um, that got solved later um, in many different ways. One, by trying to fix the actual like linking code and then the scripting behavioral code that laid on top of it. And finally, I think we made a system where we actually did assign blockchain style like large integer values to these items so that if two area serves registered it on the global serve, they would be like, hey, kill one of them, right? So that that mirror code across those boundaries was amazing because if you took that today and you fixed the you fixed the you know the the duping issues and all that sort of stuff if you took that today and you hooked it up to dynamically sized um, area servers you could handle any scale as long as you determined what your client could render on a screen at the same time and that works really well for 2.5D games because you know you could have 600 people on the screen at one time and I, I've done it right I host a, I created a live event where I had like I don't know a thousand people logged in on the same screen all getting blasted into an alternate universe and it was really fun um, and in a 2d client by the way um, and you know it had no problem handling that kind of scale so again I think the the the, the challenge for scalability and the value of it lies in two directions one dynamically handling the actual area definitions and when you're saturated allowing you to fail over to a nearby area right like actually have a seamless border instead of having teleportation zones i think that's a i don't know that's a design philosophy for me game design philosophy i think that that zoning is just like lame i, I think that's totally just a like a, a lame thing to do i think persistent worlds where you can actually walk across like the entire world are cool yeah um and and then um the actual networking code <laughs> the optimization of the networking code is absolutely critical. And UO, by the way, did a lot of crazy things for syncing. Um, you know, I respect Blizzard a ton for the um, interpolation code that they wrote for Overwatch, for instance. But UO's interpolation code was pretty amazing. And so being able to provide interpolation technology, area serve balancing, not just like game server load balancing. I'm not talking about like game server load balancing, like you can just get right now from some of the large cloud providers i'm talking about like actual intra game networking code that's valuable that's something that i, I wish i i saw more about online right now and again there's a, bit, a little bit of reinventing the wheel here because these were challenges that were solved early on and then forgotten by the industry because the industry just changed the kind of games they made why would you um if you don't mind and, and by the way some of the things that you mentioned we have uh part of our demo but why is it that um john carmack comes out and says it's really hard to put you know 20 avatars in a single scene um, and they're unable to get much further than that um, when it's been solved for 20 plus years, if you will. Wow, I am definitely not going to... <laughs> I'm definitely... I'm going to be very careful with uh, saying anything crosswise with John Carmack, who is like, you know, the godfather of uh, this uh, 3D side of these technologies. 
Um, short answer, I don't know, because, yeah, a lot of this stuff has been solved. Um, but I will say that much of that stuff was solved in perhaps a pre-rendered environment, not necessarily a live environment with tons of interactive meshes, right, that are, like, possibly very different or trying to stream stream uh, live because you don't want to load every mesh in the background of the game client. Um, so I, I'll just say, I don't know. Um, it sounds like uh, so that must he must be doing some really interesting things with his technology that I am not familiar with. Interesting. Go ahead, Thank guys. You. Let's open it up. Feel free. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, when I imagine metaverse, uh, one of the problems I think of, like, when you imagine two platforms, like a game which has their their own style, and sure. like some other, some other. What if the game wants the avatars to be of their style, but? the user wants their own avatar or like like the problem of the avatars and between yeah. the platforms and such man so that's an interesting question um you know i think i think freedom goes both ways right metaverse freedom goes both ways like you should have the freedom to say hey i want my avatar to look like this the platform should say hey i have the freedom to put certain constraints on the way avatars can look in my game right uh, Roblox does a great job of this, for instance. Roblox just says, hey, look, here's what the original OG avatars look like, but if you want to go and make your own thing, hey, look, we're just inventing new things so you can customize yourself however you want. So Roblox is awesome uh, on that side, and their clothing system with their layering system is getting absolutely phenomenal, right, for customization. But that comes with caveats. If you have a fantasy platform, you really don't want a sci-fi look, right? But if sci-fi looks your life, you know, why are you playing that game in the first place? So, again, I'm going to answer this in the way of uh, maximizing freedom of both publisher and client. I think, like, there's a balance there and that the publisher should be able to say, hey, no, um, I'll respect that you earned that really cool-looking sci-fi avatar, but in my fantasy ga uh, game, you can't bring guns. Therefore, if you want to acknowledge that you earned the... Uh, uh, 20,000 hour guns of Ultimate Doom shooting lasers in my game, cool. It's uh, it's like a little badge on your profile or something that says you're a deadly shooter, you know? But that doesn't mean that that platform should be forced to import that asset. Definitely. I'm going to transition us for just a quick question, uh, just a quick moment here. Uh, I'd like to, uh, this sounds a little odd, but I'd like to do the intro uh, that I can tag on the on the front. Um, would you just give us just in 20, 30 seconds, the basics of who you are and uh, where people can learn about you? Sure. So my name is Tim Cotton. Uh, I was a uh, MMO developer for a while at Electronic Arts and Mythic. Um, I went on to do enterprise e-commerce and blockchain stuff, and I've founded a new startup doing really fun things with NFTs that are not copy-paste, uh, doing some cool stuff with AI. Yep. You can go to scriptedinc.com. So scripted, S-C-R-Y-P-T-E-D-I-N-C.com. And you can get on our wait list, and we'll get you some cool stuff for free. Absolutely. Awesome. You'll get your, we'll get a free NFT for you. Sounds good. All right, I just got that one there. I'd like to transition a little bit uh, now that I have that one in the bag. Uh, I'd like to just uh, invite uh, us to figure out ways that we can empower and help each other. Um, and uh, let's say, for example, what are some ways that maybe we could benefit you? 
You know, uh, the number one way is we always need people in the community to um, test things and evangelize, right? I think the yeah. most amazing thing about uh, any kind of metaverse or Web 3.0 community is that people get such a vested interest in um, having fun or yeah. seeing their stuff be successful yeah. that they bring a friend and yeah. friend brings a friend, right? Definitely. That's the kind of stuff that empowers companies like mine yeah. and other companies in the future to be successful in a space that would otherwise be dominated by giant monolithic corporations. So if Definitely. you wanna see a metaverse, right? If you really wanna see a metaverse that isn't owned by one company, then we need people like you guys to just come hang out with us in our discords, um, come um, play test things when we're putting things out and share it with your friends. That's what we need. So everybody, I have put the link in general chit chat here. If you if you click on there, um, I believe you can sign up right then and there and get in touch with them. Um, what's your discord? I'd love to uh, share it with everybody here. Sure, I'll pull up the link and I'll put it in chat. Sure. Uh, general chit chat is a good place, and if it if it sends you like a warning or something, just send it to me, and I'll I'll fix Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, other things. Uh, so basically, uh, I, I think we benefit basically from just having these discussions. Sometimes we got to grow our knowledge of this space. I, I'm I'm really determined to uh, you know learn about it so that uh, we can make our skills really relevant. Um, to the space as it grows up, uh, we're in that baby phase right now, I think, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into what this space really means and is over the next coming years. And uh, we just want to make sure that uh, people and their interests remain at the center. And actually, this this leads into a better question. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this one at you. Uh, I'm struggling, and I'm I'm saying this in the uh, in a genuine sense to to figure this one out. I see a lot of people in the Web3 space trying to apply decentralization and privacy to you know the as as if it stands on its own but i, I feel like ah. we're a long way off as far as the customer like somebody asked me the other day how who are we competing with when we're making this open source stuff well if we want a multipolar kind of uh metaverse world we're competing with mark zuckerberg to put it frankly right and we've got to uh, we've got to care about the people he cares about the the average people on the street and say how do we create something that's going to change the game for them and that's going to bring them on board in large numbers to a different way of doing things and my thought is that oftentimes decentralization leads to uh, difficulty iterating and it's a struggle as far as the organization required for usability and i'm thinking how do we how do we get over that barrier and really make bring the ideals of web3 down to something practical that we can act on and really compete in this space with man yeah so you know i, th I think there's two parts to that right yeah uh, the first part is right now in web 3.0 we're talking about a very different um target audience and a very different solution than we're talking about for the 10 years from now solution that's what meta is really focusing on right so yeah. i mean like i can't speak for mark zuckerberg but i can say based on the materials that he puts out the videos that he puts out and the way he thinks and the fan that he is of this underlying sci-fi here yeah they have a long 10 20 year plan right cool. and that is to not the the plan is do not bleed off all of our social users yeah. keep them immersed in social how do we do that by engaging metaverse early even before metaverse exists yeah so that's one side early side like companies like mine and others and um even the and i hate to say it like this the 99 percent of nfts right now they're just copy pasted junk right yeah. their value proposition is 
hey, we're trying to just make stuff for Web 3.0. Maybe it'll be metaverse one day. Yeah. And um, please fund us by buying our art. Yeah. And that's that's not necessarily wrong. It's wrong when you do a rug pull. It's wrong when you do cash grabs. It's wrong when you're not actually trying to provide utility. Yeah. Uh, or um, if, you, if you're actually open artists who are like just making cool art and saying, hey, this is all about, you know, this one's worth a million dollars. Are you gonna be the guy who's that who's that awesome who has the million dollar thing and differentiate yourself? Okay, that's that's like a uh, that's that's a standard thing in economics. Yep. People buy expensive things because they're expensive. Fair enough. Be upfront about it. But if you're just gonna copy paste that and you have a bunch of pixel crack that is useless, well, that's not fun for anyone. You're just wasting. You're just putting garbage into the space. So then you say, let's build communities of people who want to play things. And if they want to help fund those things, all we're seeing then is an evolution from free to play games to pay to earn games or pay and earn or pay or earn. There's a whole thing about PXE, I'm going to call it, because like it can be any of those. You, yeah. you can you can play uh, with money or you can play without money. You might make money. You got to be careful with that, right? Yeah. But what we're seeing, and I was very impressed by Jordan Blackman's um, session at GDC this year when he pointed out that, you know, FTP, like the, the whole the whole free to play movement, it just ate the lunch of like standard publishing, right? Because it offered a value proposition of download this now for free, and we'll just put some stuff in the game through ads or other things or purchases that make it support us, the developers. The problem is you have to have a heavy investment to create the game first and be attractive before you can start reaping some funds and building up more content. So there's like this, this chart going up like this it looks a little bit like a sigmoid curve he showed yeah. um crypto and web 3.0 projects do the exact opposite they say hey we don't really have a game yet but since we're funded up here we'll be able to spend all of that money and then add utility over time and now we've got utility and now we've turned it over to the community because we've gotten bored we're going to make a new project yeah so suddenly suddenly the shift just like we shifted to free to play I think we're going to see more of a shift away from free to play towards these play to earn games because instead of making two cents on the dollar from free to play, suddenly you're making dollars. Yeah, ah, that's a that's a crazy value proposition for any game developer. Pretty Definitely. cool thing. But again, these people need to make things that are valuable to the community. Yeah. I hope my company is doing that. I believe that that's what my entire existence is in this whole space is to try new things that may fail, but it's not for lack of trying or uh, ideas or design it's yep. because you know we're just gonna we're gonna do cool things that are different that no one's actually tried before that can only be done with blockchain technology that's that's the key for me is if i could do this without blockchain technology why would i do it right but if it needs blockchain technology in some way cool that's that's a neat idea and then if that can be part of the future metaverse even cooler absolutely all right, guys, keep going. Uh, I know I've been sent a bunch of questions, but uh, jump in, speak up if you want to ask. For the sake of your ears, I have removed another question from one of our members. He didn't have the best mic, but basically he asked, what was it like to get into the game industry then and how is it now and how do they compare? Wow, that is a fantastic question. Uh, the, it's changed a lot. Um, okay. So you asked specifically about my time and then now. So let's talk about my time. In my time, everything was proprietary. Unity barely existed in my time, okay? We're talking this, this barely existed. Um, 
So everything was proprietary. Every time we wanted to do something with a 3D engine, we were rolling it in-house and the company itself would set standards. Um, for instance, Electronic Arts, we had a standard library for C++ called the EASTL. Um, we had a standard set of technologies that we had licensed and we were supposed to use. Um, I can't say all the names, but you know, we had requirements that we had to follow. Keep in mind, a lot of the games had been built before those standards existed um, bespoke. Like UO's engine is like the original 2D engine for UO is completely different than the uh, 3D enabled engine that they wrote later. Um, so you ended up with these corporations controlling their game developer technologies so that when the game developers would shift from one company to another or start again, um, it, it game developers didn't necessarily find it as easy to create new companies themselves, right? They would just shift to different companies um, that could afford outlay and costs. Now, uh, we've seen a huge democratization of technology, um, platforms, and assets, right? Um, Unity and Unreal have kind of dominated the market, but they've made it possible for small teams, very small teams, to make very successful games um, and very good-looking games, even in 3D instead of just doing um, 2D games. And that's allowed enough tools to be developed and, again, enough assets that it's diversified the entire field. And suddenly, what are we seeing again? We're seeing more 2D games and more text games. Like I was at GDC, uh, one of my favorite parts of the uh, Indie Expo, you know, seeing the indie games, is seeing people who are making narrative-driven text games. That's so cool. You know, it's like um, the industry doesn't uh, exactly just go up in a curve like this technologically. It tends to circle around and revisit itself. And that's a good thing because we see it through new lenses of our later experience. So I think now it's easier than ever for people to get involved in game development. Um, there's lower entries, lower barriers of entry to coding. Um, there's more resources for it. There's more solutions that don't require coding. There's more uh, art packs that you can literally buy, sound, music, all of it. It all exists in a way now that makes it easier for an indie developer to get involved. Really, it's, it blows my mind at how much better the overall indie space is now than it has ever been. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you want to join us, check out the Discord link down in the description below. We would love to have you be part of the community or just join in on our chats. We actually are looking for volunteers to help us. Uh, we are actually making games together to learn to, to you know, create a relevance in our skills toward this space so we can impact it for the sake of privacy and freedom. And so if you want to be part of that journey, if you want to make virtual worlds with us, or if you uh, have expertise in the space and want to mentor those doing so, jump in. We'd love to get to know you and we'd love to build the open metaverse community together.